This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Rick Hansen. Rick is a neuropsychologist and co-founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. Along with Dr. Rick Mendius, Rick is the co-author of Buddha's Brain, the practical neuroscience of happiness, love, and wisdom, as well as the Sounds True audio learning programs, Meditations for Happiness and Meditations to Change Your Brain. I spoke with Rick about the neurological structure of the brain and how this knowledge can help us enhance and create a positive mental outlook, as well as healing negative memories and emotions. Here's Rick Hansen on You Can Change Your Brain. Rick, to begin with, you're a psychologist and then someone who's also been a longtime meditator. And I'm curious how you got involved in the study of neuroscience. Right. Well, I've always been really interested in the mind, and by that I mean just the usual mess. In other words, thoughts, feelings, desires, frustrations, uh, longings, memories, all that, reactions to parents and school kids and so on. But, and then increasingly it's become clear, especially with science, that uh, the mind is mostly, if not entirely, what the brain does. So if you're interested in, in what your mind is doing, it really helps to understand what your brain is doing. And recently, in the last mm, 10, 20 years probably, there's actually a kind of critical mass of knowledge about the brain that tells you enough that you can actually start to do things uh, thoughtfully to uh, light up the brain states that support positive mental states. So for, for me, someone who has a personal interest in this for himself, but also really wants to help people, that was like, oh my gosh, we found the golden key. Okay, so just to slow down, slow down here a minute. Sure. What has happened in the last 10 or 20 years? What kinds of scientific breakthroughs have happened that have brought this quote-unquote golden key, as you're saying, forward? Yeah. Um, well, like a lot of things, a lot of things have come together. It's not just one thing. Um, it's estimated by actually literally the executive uh, director of the American Association for the Advancement of Science that uh, neuroscience knowledge about the brain has literally doubled in the last 20 years. We know twice as much today than we did 20 years ago. And, and a lot of that is due to the advent of new technologies, just like the microscope revolutionized biology, say, or the telescope revolutionized astronomy. Um, imaging technologies like with MRIs, um, fMRIs, which means you can get a moving picture of what's going on, um, have really en enabled people to look inside the head without hurting anybody, in other words. And so um, that has literally just transformed the field. And that's been one big thread. I think a second big thread is very interesting in that, for all kinds of reasons, um, scientists have become much more interested in people who have really trained their minds to see what's happening in their brains. And so they've really turned to the contemplatives. 
they've taken a real hard look at um, long-term meditators. And um, for various reasons, some of them historical probably, Buddhism has been the main place they've looked, partly because its theory of mind is very translatable to Western science and psychology, and also because the Dalai Lama in particular has really been interested in this. So these two things have really come together, these new microscopes for peering into the brain, and combined with uh, people who have trained their mind extensively so you can really see what some of the impacts are on their brain. And all that has then become um, increasingly a set of tools that regular people can use in daily life to feel a lot better and to have more happiness, love, and wisdom in their life. Okay, so let's just take each of these two developments in the field of neuroscience and look at them for a moment. The, the first, as you were mentioning, is just that we know a lot more now about the brain than we did 20 years ago. We know twi- mm-hmm. what, what do we know about the brain that's significant, that, that, I, that I care about? Sure. Oh, a couple examples. Um, one, we know a lot, lot more about what happens when people get upset, when they're stuck in traffic and frustrated or arguing with their spouse or they can't get their child to act right or whatever. You know, when they're upset, um, we now know tremendously much more about how the circuits of the brain work when people are upset. Um, and, for example, we understand increasingly how it is that people get emotionally hijacked by their upsets. In other words, parts of the brain, for example, one is called the amygdala. It's an alarm bell, as it were, in the brain. The interesting thing about it is that uh, the great majority of its neurons are focused on negative information. So it's really looking for negative information. That was very useful when we evolved to um, make sure that we managed to duck all those sticks. I mean, it's important to find carrots, but from an evolutionary standpoint, sticks are much more important, uh, paying attention to sticks to avoid you know, lethal threats. So anyway, we've learned that the amygdala tends to um, overreact. And, for example, what happens when people are chronically stressed uh, the chronic cortisol releases. Cortisol is a hormone that's a stress hormone. When cortisol gets released because we're upset, because when we're upset, we're stressed, or and even mildly upset, like irritated or frustrated, you're getting a cortisol release, all right, in your body. And it takes a, quite a while for it to, um, to go away. Anyway, what cortisol does is it sensitizes the amygdala. It, so it makes that alarm bell even more sensitive and louder. And it also undermines another part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is right next to the amygdala. Hippocampus forms new memories, but it also puts the brakes on the amygdala. So chronic stress has this really nasty one-two punch. One, it jacks up the alarm bell, and two, it weakens the brakes on the alarm bell. And that's a series of discoveries that's just been made really in the last 10 or so years. That would be one example. So just in that example, to make sure that I understand it, you're saying that we developed this response to stress of being sort of hyper-alert as a kind of survival necessity. That's correct. But that, that's no longer necessary? Don't I, also, don't I still want to be... Um, aren't I still intensely interested in my survival and success? And don't I want to be sensitive to threats at all times? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm out in the, in the open range as I say this to you, but I feel that way a lot. Yeah. Well, um, you want to be sensitive to real threats. I mean, there are two kinds of mistakes we can make in life, right? One is that we think there's a tiger, but there's no tiger, or it's really a little pussycat. Or 
we're, there is a tiger, and we don't recognize that there's a tiger. And the brain is designed to um, make the first mistake a lot, because just to avoid making the second mistake. In other words, we evolved in environments that were high, and we're talking, when I say evolved, we're really talking about 150 million years or more of mammal evolution, which is when these emotion systems developed over time. So that's a long time. And during that time, that's a lot of ancestors that got eaten, frankly, by predators. Or in social groups, primates have been around uh, for, you know, 80 million years. And um, in social groups, a lot of threats come from other members of the group, uh, very aggressive um, you know, toward each other. And also then humans, hunter-gatherers, you know, stone tools came in about two and a half million years ago. Those folks had brains a third our size. The brains tripled in two and a half million years. Most of it's related to emotion and relationships, uh, interestingly. But anyway, even in those environments, the battles between bands were really, really intense. Estimates are maybe one in eight people were killed as a result of them compared to one in a hundred killed in all the wars of the 20th century. See what I mean? So these are really intense environments. So in those environments, it makes sense to be paranoid, you know, to be anxious and irritable. But today, much of the time, uh, the truth is we're not subject to lethal threat. Um, we have many, many, many more resources. We can cope with them a lot better. And yet we still have this hair-trigger neurobiology that's just ready to go. That's why, you know, the, the brain has what's called a negativity bias. It's really biased toward negative information. Like, you're probably familiar with the findings in couples counseling from John Gottman, John Gottman and others that, it, you know, it takes five good interactions to just make up for one bad one, you know, because that one negative interaction has such an impact. And, you know, the problem with all that, of course, is that as you go through life, most of your experiences are neutral to positive, but the brain doesn't particularly remember them. But anything that's negative, it fast-tracks it. The brain's like, you know, Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. And then the unfortunate thing, it's totally unfair. You know, even though most of your life is 99.5% or more neutral to positive, you know, slowly over time, you start building up what's called implicit memory, not so much for events, but just for feelings, this big pile of negative implicit memory that starts tilting your landscape of your mind in an increasingly negative direction. And, and again, I think the brain science is really useful there because it points to, okay, we have this, I won't call it a design flaw, it worked really great to enable our ancestors to succeed and have you and, and uh, me talking on the phone today. But um, that predisposition, that negativity bias, uh, really, really undermines well-being and also functioning. Really makes it harder for people to interact with each other and so forth. So, what the science has indicated is both the nature of that negativity bias, but also how you can use memory systems every day in daily life, just in the little things of every of daily living, to counterbalance it and increasingly build up a, a pile of negative experiences by taking in the good. Okay, so I, I get that there's a part of my brain that's biased towards negativity, and I can confirm that from my own personal experience. Yeah, a lot of your brain, not just part. Oh, a lot of my brain. <laughs> the whole system, including in your body, too, because when we talk about the brain, we, we have to really, we, that's just shorthand for saying the nervous system, which is intertwined with the hormonal system and other systems in your body. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
um, all of me is yeah. biased towards negativity. I can still confirm that. Yeah. My, my question is, through the science of the last two decades, what have we learned? You mentioned this thing about implicit memory. What have we learned to help shift this? If I'm being paranoid for no reason, h- how can I work with my brain to shift towards being more balanced in my view of the world? Right. I'll, well, I'll, me- I'll mention two um, methods that can be derived from two sort of lines of research in a real summary way. Um, the first is that research has shown what lots of people already experienced in therapy, but research has really uh, clarified it, that when you put words to feelings, when you just label them, that does two things. One, it really stimulates activity in what's called the prefrontal cortex, the very front part of your brain, kind of just behind the forehead. And second, it really lowers activity in this amygdala alarm circuit. And so that's a finding that shows that the simple act of naming to yourself what you're feeling as you're feeling it helps to dampen this, um, you know, overreaction that's driven by the negativity bias. No matter what you're feeling? I mean, I'm naming naming positive feelings, naming negative feelings. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, That's very interesting. Um, Again, the the thing about these technologies, they're really in their infancy. You know, I... When I'm, I, I think, honestly, we have to think about, you know, hundreds of years before the brain is really, really, really understood. But meanwhile, so the studies, I've actually never seen a study about uh, labeling positive uh, emotion states. It might exist, but, you know, what people are interested in, of course, is how to handle painful experiences. And it's also, to be clear, it's... It's not that just labeling it will make yourself, oh, yeah, just feel great again. I mean, things happen. There's a place for negative experience. There, there's a place for having our heart open by it, uh, tenderizing the heart with pain and, and, and using anger to focus on social injustice and things like that. But uh, most people, very few people would say they're not having enough negative emotions, you know, rolling through their mind. Um, so the point is, is that just labeling it won't necessarily make it go away. You need to do other things as well. You know, there are other disciplines and techniques, but that was one example I wanted to give you where there's a, there's a you know, good research that supports a method. Um, you want to hear the other one about yeah, doing what's painful? Yeah, um, What's really interesting is that people are starting to understand, scientists are starting to understand how memory is actually formed. And the way the brain does it is that it's so fast and it has so many neurons that it can afford to rebuild the memory from scratch or from some basic um, seeds, if you would, you could call it that, uh, each time it brings it up. So let's say you had an experience when you were young, I'll, I'll speak personally here, being picked last in uh, sports. Okay, so that's, a pain, that's an embarrassing and uncomfortable and painful experience. And um, so if, if I remember that, like right now I'm remembering it, my brain basically is rebuilding that memory. Okay, and here's the interesting part. When, I, when my mind starts to move on to the next thing, uh, that memory gets restored. It gets reconsolidated is the word in memory stores. But when it gets reconsolidated, it's vulnerable to change. Literally, for example, if um, there are rat studies that if you inject rats with a certain um, chemical, that um, blocks protein synthesis in different ways, 
that you, you can literally erase a memory. Uh, it's interesting the fellow Joseph Ledoux, who did much of the research on this, um, said in his uh, book, Synaptic Self, that he actually got an email from a guy who said, can you make me forget my ex-wife? doesn't really work like that, right? But that's the basic idea. Well, um, with human beings, we can't really um, take those drugs, um, although the drug companies right today are working on it because if you can patent that kind of a drug, you make a lot of money. But anyway, um, what you can do instead yourself is when something painful is an awareness, if you bring also to mind positive information, especially in positive feelings that are really felt and intense that are the counter to that negative experience, you gradually infuse that negative memory or negative experience um, with positive associations when it goes back into storage. And so the next time it comes up, it'll take a little bit of that positive tinge. It'll bring a little bit of that positive tinge with it. It won't, happen, it won't change overnight. You need to stick with it. But over time, you can gradually really help yourself from the inside out shift your interior landscape. You won't forget what happened, and um, there will probably still be some charge on it, but the charge can be really diminished over time by um, either taking a good experiences and kind of sending them down into those old hurt places inside, or when you recall something from that old hurt place, also at some uh, point that feels right to you, maybe bring into mind something else that's positive. So you're saying that the, the memory isn't a solid thing, like the memory you brought up of mm. not being picked for sports teams. Yeah. How would you work with that in the present to use this technique that you're offering here? Yeah. Well, a couple sort of disclaimers. Um, I think there's, I think it's important it's, and fundamental to be able to just be with your experience as it is and without trying to tinker with it and just be with it and bear it and be mindful of it and be spacious and aware. That itself um, is a wonderful thing for many reasons and is really fundamental. Second, I think there's a pitfall. You know, I lived through the 60s and the whole um, kind of human potential movement and all the rest of that. I was a part of it. And, you know, there are a lot of good things about it, but you can take it too far to where you have this kind of tinkering with your mind all the time obsession. And I think that's a pitfall. But that said, a lot of us are um, afflicted in some ways with these painful experiences that just keep coming back or haunting us in some way. So let's use mine of being picked last. So I'm thinking about being picked last. First, I, I allow myself to, to feel what I feel. You know, I, I bring compassion to myself about it. I accept it. I name it. Like, oh, there again, feeling inadequate, feeling unwanted, uh, lame everybody's watching. Uh, what a loser. You know, so I'm aware of all those thoughts, right, and feelings, and I can feel it in my body. I can even feel it right now in this phone call, that funny feeling in the chest when you come and get back in touch with that sort of stuff. And then what I would do is deliberately bring to mind counters to that, not at an intellectual level. There's a place for that. That's like cognitive therapy. What I'm talking about is emotional and felt in the body. So I would bring to mind the feelings I've had countless times of rock climbing where I feel really strong, I feel fit, I'm good at it, I succeed at it, uh, it's challenging and scary and I get through it, I feel good. I'm doing that right now. That feeling that I'm bringing into memory is a great counter to um, that old experience of feeling kind of weak and inadequate. 
for example. So I would just think about rock climbing or something else, maybe playing touch football. I've done that a lot. I'm good at it. I like it. I feel good. So it makes me feel good. I'm bringing that association to mind. That, too, is starting to get mingled with because the brain's a giant networker, right? It's the, the World Wide Web is inside the head, right? It's constantly networking, and so it just associates things for better or for worse, in this case, hopefully for better, by bringing in positive memories. Interesting. So what you're saying is that there's a, a kind of fluidity or plasticity to the brain where things aren't solid. You can re-imprint these memories such that the next time it comes up, it won't come up with the same kind of pain because you've uh, grounded these positive experiences and networked them with the old pain. Is that what you're saying? That, that's a very well said. And to stress the point you made, uh, plasticity or fluidity, I'm you're, you're aware of the phrase neuroplasticity these days. And for the brain to learn, for, for us to learn at all, the brain has to be plastic. In other words, for a child to learn to walk or to talk or to read, uh, the brain has to be plastic. But plasticity doesn't end when you graduate from high school. I mean, it's a lifelong process. And it's, and it's most of the plasticity, the brain is in social-emotional learning. It's not so much in conceptual, you know, linguistically-based learning. And so the fundamental idea is that I think it's so common to feel kind of like we're stuck with our mind. You know, it is what it is, and we just kind of make our way regardless. But to feel increasingly that you can gradually but definitely influence your own mind resting on the brain by changing the brain, you can gradually, gradually sift new positive influences into the tapestry um, you can weave those positive influences in into this dynamic, evolving, changing, very alive tapestry of the brain. Wow, that's fantastic. It just gives you a real feeling in your heart from the inside out that you can actually do something that's real. It's grounded in science. It's grounded in the brain. It's lasting. It's enduring. You can do something that's real that really helps yourself feel better and be kinder and more gracious and, you know, less... less uh, abrasive or contentious to other people around you. I'm curious what's happening in the brain if a negative past experience comes up in memory mm-hmm. and I'm just with it. As you mentioned, that that in and of itself is beneficial. Mm-hmm. I'm just sitting with it. I'm not reacting. I'm just accepting it. Is there something happening in my brain at that point, even if I don't call in this positive association? Well, it's a tricky thing. Uh, so first off, there's this classic phrase, neurons that fire together wire together. In other words, that's, that's a major mechanism for the way in which what we experience leaves a lasting trace. In other words, what we experience seems immaterial, right? It's a feeling, it's a thought, it's an image, what have you. But actually, it's leaving a trace in neural structure. And um, any single trace doesn't matter that much usually but it's a slow accumulating weight of traces that makes a difference. So if we're thinking about a painful memory, those neurons are firing and they are an extra little bit of wiring is occurring just by thinking about it. So that's one reason why um, one of the takeaways for me from what I've learned in the last you know, five, 10 years uh, in this field is, is to really kind of think of my own mind as a little bit like a temple and to be thoughtful and mindful about what I allow in it because what's in my mind is wiring away, if it's firing away. So I think it's a, a, take, a takeaway there is to be thoughtful and maybe a little cautious 
about ruminating about negative experiences. That's the first thing. Second, uh, some people have a trauma history should not try to think about painful their painful memories because it, it just starts it just triggers a loop and then it just starts looping and the, when it's looping those neurons are firing and therefore wiring so that's not a good thing. But now let's say that that's not what's happened here. There's just kind of being with it and. Um, being with it has a lot of uh, positive qualities. Uh, for one, there's a detachment from what you're with, right? You're not just totally sucked into it. You're, you're, you're mindfully aware of it. Often also, people are aware of it with an attitude of a kind of a kindness or acceptance. That attitude is itself powerful and beneficial for people, very often, especially if people did not experience as much of that kindness and acceptance in their family or in their schools with their peers as would be ideal. So they're giving to themselves today what was maybe missing or in short supply when they were young, and that sinks in. That, that is also firing away and therefore wiring away. Uh, and then I say the last thing is when people move to that place of mindfulness and just being with, it tends to start to activate what's called the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system, which is the sort of soothing, calming, bodily relaxing uh, antidote to the fight or flight sympathetic wing of the nervous system. So all those are good things. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Now, in the beginning of our conversation, you were saying that in the last 10 to 20 years, we've learned all of this new information about the brain. And in addition, we've begun studying the brains of meditators mm -hmm. to discover interesting things. And, yeah. and I'm curious if you can talk some about that. What have we discovered about the brains of people who do a lot of intensive meditation? Sure. Uh, well, the studies are in their infancy. Um, they've been done mainly on two groups of meditators. Um, well, I'd say really three groups. Number one, people who, did, uh, who do or did transcendental meditation. Second, uh, people doing uh, quite deep um, uh, contemplative practice in Buddhism, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism. And then also there have been a number of studies, a growing number uh, of people who've had fairly brief mindfulness uh, meditation training or mindfulness-based stress reduction training. And what are the results there? So those, those three groups have been studied. Number one that they found is that um, meditation makes a difference in the brain. And, uh, and I'll go back to what some of those differences are in a second. Second, uh, those differences are based on what's called dosing. They talk about dosages of meditation, which is like funny because it's not dosages of you know Prozac or something. But anyway, um, in other words, you get practice effects. The more you meditate, the better the effect, for example. And then they've also found some very interesting findings that um, people who uh, have a strong meditation practice can do pretty remarkable things and unusual things with their brains that people who don't meditate um, can't do. So to kind of rewind and summarize, uh, major findings about the effects of meditation on the brain are, gosh, in no particular order, um, it makes, it, uh, uh, it literally thickens uh, the amount of gray matter. It increases gray matter. In the prefrontal cortex, that very frontmost part of your brain just behind your forehead, it increases gray matter in... Okay, um, can you go ahead and explain what gray matter is and oh, why, sure. why I want more of it? Yeah, really. <laughs> Sounds so dull and yuck, right? Gray, ooh, who wants that? But anyway, 
Well, so quick summary here. Brain has 1.1 trillion cells, weighs about three pounds, looks kind of like tofu, basically, but packed into that brain, three pounds, are 1.1 trillion cells. A hundred billion of them are neurons. So uh, of the gray matter, um, let's see, there's gray matter and white matter. White matter is the non-neurons, which is the great majority of the cells in the brain. And second, it's the axons, which are these little fibers that connect the cell bodies of neurons to each other. Axons, are it's a little bit like a neuron's like a little switch in a sense, on off, it either fires or it doesn't. And uh, uh, axons are like little wires connecting 100 billion switches together inside your head, all right? Um, so you want more gray matter because what that means is that you are uh, building connections between neurons. It means that neurons are actually connecting, you're getting more connections going in your brain, which increases your functionality and performance, if you will, in that part of your brain. You don't, uh, other than a very small um, percentage of the neurons in the brain, uh, you don't grow new neurons, generally speaking. You do grow some new neurons in the hippocampus, and exercise really helps, by the way grow new neurons so I think there are a lot of new neurons in Boulder personally um, but uh, um, mostly what you do is you grow connections all right so you it's good to have more gray matter in different parts of the brain does that mean I'm connecting the left and right side of my brain or just connecting various different thoughts and that's making me more creative and able to sort of see synchronicities and that kind of thing yeah um, well, the findings on meditation are more that you are, it's not so much you're connecting the left-right hemisphere together more, although I personally bet that people are by the nature of meditation because you're, you're feeling things and you're also labeling them. But it's more that what the science has found, at least so far, is that you're building up gray matter in certain areas that have certain really important functions. For example, I was, I was going to say that the second place where you build up gray matter is called the insula. It's right in the middle of the brain. Um, and that part of the brain is what we use to sense our own internal state of being, particularly in our body and in our deep feelings. But we also use it for empathy. It's what we use to tune into the feelings of other people and resonate with them by stimulating inside ourselves a kind of echo or resonance with what they're feeling over there. So by being, by meditating or doing other related forms of brain activity like listening to guided visualizations or doing mindfulness-based stress reduction or you know things like that or listening to people and other sounds true products and so forth they're building up their insula so they're more in touch with themselves and that also will help spark creativity because a lot of creative stuff comes from the bottom up you know kind of bubbles up so if you're more in touch with yourself you're going to be more able to access inspiration and creativity, creativity, but it also makes you more in tune with other people. So that's one of a number of findings of the effects of meditation on the brain. It increases serotonin. Um, it increases the activation in the left side of the prefrontal cortex. Right, so, go, go a little slower with me sure. here, Rick. Um, it increases serotonin, and, and mm -hmm. what, are, what are the effects of that? Oh, sure. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters are these little chemicals in between neurons. It's how neurons communicate with each other. Serotonin is a really important one. A lot of people have heard about it because it's very centrally involved in depression and mood and also being able to manage stress and sleep well and digestion too. But in terms of uh, the psychological aspects of it, if you're meditating more, 
you're um, you're you know probably increasing serotonin levels, which is a good thing. Um, also, like I was saying, the um, one finding too is that meditation, both in terms of people who've meditated a lot, but also literally people. I think uh, Richard Davidson took people. It was either a six or an eight week course who are technology types. No, not into their bodies, not into meditation. And after just, I think, eight weeks, they had more activation in the left prefrontal cortex, the left side of the very frontmost part of the frontal lobes, uh, than the right side. And what's interesting is the activation of the left side is associated with positive emotions. So, in other words, when you meditate more, you're strengthening the part of your brain, you're stimulating and, and therefore strengthening the part of your brain that deals with um, increasing positive emotions and um, regulating negative emotions. Okay, Rick, let me ask you a question that may sound a little idiotic, but I'm imagining someone who is a long-term meditator will have a a natural way to feel into what you're saying Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, that makes sense. I've noticed some kinds of changes like that. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's not a meditator might think, wait a second, I don't get it. There's that person sitting over there on a cushion you know, watching their breath, working with feelings of, of love and loving kindness and expanding those feelings. Mm-hmm. How, how is something that simple creating all of these changes in the brain? What's the operational function there that's happening? Well, I, I would, if I got you right, I'd say, well, you know, play a board game with your kids or your friends or get in a conversation with someone or... Uh, just plan a summer vacation. In all those cases, you're engaging in a lot of brain activity. And um, listen to this podcast. You're engaging in brain activity. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, li- that's, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hopefully not overwhelming. That's but anyway, right. I'm just kidding. Um, so, and get firing and wiring. As soon as those neurons start firing, they start wiring. And so little things, like, for example, uh, I love some of this stuff because it's so goofy, but it's far out like taxi drivers in London who have to memorize all these twisty streets, their hippocampus, remember the hippocampus again forms memories, especially forms memories of where you are in space, all right? Their hippocampuses, hippocampi, either two of them, get bigger. They get more gray matter in the hippocampus just by memorizing London streets. So mental activity changes neural structure. It just so happens that meditation is a certain kind of mental activity that changes neural structure that's related to meditation. Things like self-awareness, control of attention, positive mood. Um, those, for example, are really used when you meditate, and therefore, no surprise, those brain regions develop when you do those practices. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the program that you created here with Sounds True mm-hmm. is called Meditations to Change Your Brain. Mm-hmm. And what I'm curious about is, you know, first of all, we're using the mind to change our brain, and so mm-hmm. we have to make some distinctions here between the mind and the brain. And, and I'm wondering if you can help orient me to that. Yeah. Well, it, it's an ultimately really deep question that science is grappling with, and no one knows how neural activity translates into conscious experience. In other words, the classic example is the color red. You see something red, or if you're colorblind, you see something that's a different shade of brown or whatever. You see a difference out there. No one knows how light bouncing off that object and hitting your retina and going through the brain becomes that experience. 
that said, it's increasingly clear that you, when your brain changes, your mind changes. In other words, if you fiddle with the brain, you can create mental experiences for people in all kinds of ways. Um, for example, fiddle with the brain with your morning coffee. That creates mental experiences of different kinds. But the other side is true. In other words, when the mind changes, the brain changes. And it changes both temporarily, but also in really lasting ways. So the point is that by using your mind, but in a targeted way, a clever way, you can um, build up the circuits that you really want to build up, and you can um, control the circuits you want to control. And in fact, you can kind of slowly almost erase the circuits that you kind of want to get rid of within limits but you actually have a lot of influence over your own brain um, by using your mind in a, in a targeted way. And that's, I guess the point is that the science has given us those targets. In other words, it's not perfect yet. This is like um, you know, a really good early draft of an effort at this, but already there's a lot of promise here. You know, in the, different multi in the multiple meditations in the product that I did with you all, there are a lot of very focused... Um, uh, uses of the mind that will reliably change the brain in some targeted ways. Okay, so uh, again, just to go a little bit further, the mm -hmm. the brain is the sort of physical apparatus. Yeah. What is the mind? I think of the mind as the flow of information through the nervous system. So, for example, um, think of it this way. You know, listeners are, are hearing sounds right now, and but what they're really doing is they're extracting meaning. In other words, that's information. We're hoping so. We hope so. They're pulling meaning out of a um, physical substrate that starts out with you know, sound waves from whatever they're listening to into their ear, whether it's you know, um, earphones or speaker or in their car or something like that. You know, so the point is that information is being carried by, a fit by hardware. Software is being carried by hardware. All right? And the point is that it could be all kinds of hardware. For example... Uh, when we originally recorded the program, it got put on a certain kinds of uh, digital recording, and then that got transferred into other forms, and then now it's the meaning is traveling through sound waves. The brain and the mind are the same. The, the mind is like the software. It's the meaning. It's the information flowing through that's supported by this hardware, the nervous system. Most of the mind is out of awareness. It's unconscious. We'll never be aware of it, and that's the way it is. Um, but the point is that for mental activity to occur, including just understanding these words right now, you know, or just remembering if I said birthday cake and associations pop up for birthday cake, that mental activity could not occur without underlying neural activity. Right? So there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, a mapping, if you will, a relationship between the mind and the brain. To be clear... The mind makes the brain as, you know, as much as the brain makes the mind. They codependently arise, if you will. They work together. But by using the mind in a very focused way, you can change over time the neural activities that, you know, that mental activity is mapping to. Now, this gets metaphysical, but, uh, you know, the obvious question is, if there's this one-to-one -one mapping, is yeah. there no consciousness without the brain? That's, a great, again, a great question. Uh, I, very early on, I said, um, I slipped something in, which is that uh, the mind is, uh, 
you know, mostly if not entirely what the brain does. And uh, I slipped in that mostly because some people, and science does not uh, deal in terms of some ultimate or transcendental factor. It just sets it aside. It's possible that we'll discover that for human consciousness to occur, and then you have to ask yourself, would it apply to the consciousness of a dog, a squirrel, or a mosquito, say? Um, for consciousness to occur, there has to be something mysteriously transcendental at work that goes beyond the physical universe, goes beyond the operation of the mind, of the brain. We don't know yet. But meanwhile, boy, uh, every day the scientists are discovering tighter and tighter connections between the mind and the brain. I personally am a transcendentalist. I think there really is something mysteriously transcendental. I think there's something irreducible that's required for um, mental functioning to occur. But uh, most thoughts, feelings, uh, most of what we care about in terms of daily living, I think it maps really, really closely to brain activity. And therefore, by um, being able to influence brain activity, you can influence mental activity. Okay, because I'm interested in you, Rick, I'd like to know what has given you this bent towards a transcendentalist view. What experiences in your life, or, or why is that your instinct? All right, the deep end of the pool. Um, I would say several things. One is that, uh, I'd say there are two things. One, I, I guess I'd just say I experience it. There are two reasons. One is I experience it. I just experience that there is something um, conscious, blissful, awake, alive that arises as this universe. And I just experience it. Now, whether that experience is an artifact of my imagination, I can't prove it, right? But I would say I totally experience it, and it's frankly one of the most important experiences, if that's even the right word for it, of my life. But it's not an idea. It's not conceptual. It's actually it's a sense of the way things really are. And um, uh, when I read certain teachings that speak that more eloquently than I just did, and from a more mature place of realization, too, I instantly feel the truth of it. I guess I would just say that. You know, it's the stuff we feel is true. Maybe we're wrong, but we feel it's true. Second, it makes sense to my mind. Uh, one, uh, the fact that uh, pretty universally, uh, very, very realized people who've really gone about as far as you possibly can in human development, they usually all say kind of the same thing, which is, by you know whatever language they use, which varies from culture to culture, there really is there's an X factor. They call it God, call it the ground, call it nothing at all, the nameless, the unconditioned. There's something there. The fact that we had the testimony of so many independent people across all kinds of cultures never met each other is very persuasive to me. Second, uh, when you think about how the universe was created or or emerged, um, then the notion that it just bubbled out and it arises in this and out of and as, who knows, this underlying matrix could be 11 dimensions of strength theory, who knows? I don't know. It just seems to make sense to me that, um, you know, there's, there's something um, bigger than this universe that's making a difference in this universe. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now, from the uh, 
from the deep end to the pool to maybe the most challenging part of the pool. Mm. I know I know that you're a parent. Yep. And I'm curious what you've discovered about the brain mm. that has helped you in parenting. Wow. Well, uh, let's see here. Well, I wish I'd known more about it early <laughs> on. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. A couple of things. Uh, one, I really learned how sensitive the brain is to physiology. And I've really come to appreciate seeing it with my own kids, who like, are both very sensitive to gluten grains and milk protein, for example, as a lot of people are. And uh, it's not that it's going to put them in the hospital, boy, but it'll make them cranky and depressed and forgetful and, and irritable. And, uh, and those, those uh, nutritional inputs are affecting their brain? They intertwine. In other words, for example, um, the immune system and the nervous system are really intertwined. There's a whole field now called psychoneuroimmunology because it all goes together. And the psycho part has to do with the mind, you know, psychology. That's conscious experience, generally speaking. So our conscious experience is influenced by our nervous system interacting with our immune system. If we are allergic to a food, say, or sensitive to it, that's activating our immune system, we're getting a systemic inflammatory reaction through our whole body, and that is then also affecting things like concentration and mood and reactivity, you know, irritability, for example. So that's one thing I learned. I, I really have come to appreciate uh, the impact on conscious experience of small things being not quite right in a person's physiology that really add up over time. So that would be one thing. Second, Boy, I really have come to appreciate the importance of taking in the good. You know, this whole thing about the negativity, the bias of the brain, it's really alive and well in children. And also kids who are particularly anxious, say, or particularly spirited, in other words, on either end of the temperamental spectrum, they especially need to take in the good because um, anxious kids tend to not notice it and spirited kids move on so fast to the next thing that they don't really allow their neural systems time to register the positive experience they just had. So doing little things like, um, you know, really helping your children just kind of take a few seconds to feel something when it's good, or particularly when they're young and they'll put up with this because uh, they want to keep you in the room when you're putting them to bed, late at night just before they go to sleep when their minds are very open, just reviewing the day for a minute about things that happened that were really good or just good things about them so they feel those good things and then focus on having them sink in you know, really go in. I mean, that's, I would say that's a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, another is to really, frankly, recognize the power of uh, anger. Anger in our evolution is incredibly salient. You know, they've done primate studies that the one emotion that uh, primates, you know, gorillas, baboons, orangutans, monkeys, whatever, chimps, the one emotion everybody notices is anger. You know, sorrow, eh, fear, hmm, anger. Boy, that's the one. And you just see that in a It's like in a crowd of restaurant, a lot of voices. You pick out someone's talking in an angry voice, everybody gets quiet. Right? They're like, wow. And just really appreciating the impact of anger in families, um, on children, on marriages. Uh, there's a place for anger, I think. There's certainly a place for experiencing it. I think it's wise to be thoughtful and careful about how we express it, especially with kids. But um, to be just really thoughtful about the impact of anger, that was another takeaway for me from all this stuff. Are there any studies that demonstrate what's happening uh, when someone's in the field of anger? 
Boy, I have not. I, I did my early work on child development, and um, well, there's there's a lot of research on the impact on children of parental anger. I would say that, and generally speaking, it's not good. Um, there's a place for mild, contained parental anger, but chronic parental anger or parental anger that just is way over the top or parental anger that gets violent, those are all really problematic. Those are red flags. Those are bad. Um, For adults, um, there's a fair amount of research that when we're around people that are angry, we we tend to get a stress reaction. You know, cortisol levels start to rise. The heart starts beating faster. Um, We are even so sensitive, frankly, that we pick up on vibes. I mean, there are interesting studies now where they present angry faces to people in like a, you know a hundredth of a second, so it's so fast, or a fiftieth of a second. Say it's so fast they can't consciously see it. Consciously they'd say, I, I don't know. I don't even know if I what I saw. They don't even know they saw a face. But the fact that they saw that angry face for that tiny amount of time primes them. In other words, it you know inclines them. It tilts them toward reacting angrily and fearfully themselves to something neutral, for example. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, one area that I'm personally really interested in, and I'm sure other people who uh, are meditators are interested, is where the sense of me comes from and how that <laughs> relates to what we know about, about the brain at this point. Wow. Another deep end question. Um, can I say one thing that's tangential because it's in my mind and Please. an important point, and I'll come back. One thing that strikes me is that a lot of us feel sort of at the effect of our reactions. You know, we have these thoughts. We wish we had different thoughts. You know, we have these feelings. We wish we had different feelings. Um, or or they obstruct us. You know, we feel afraid to really tell someone that we love them. Or we feel really inhibited about taking a chance in our career or work because we don't want to flop, even though everybody tells us we ought to try it, you know, that it's actually low risk, whatever it is. And... And then also out in the larger world, not just inside our heads, but in the larger world, we see all these forces that we have no control over. War, terrorism, economy, recession, politics. We just feel like, wow, there's so little I can have an effect on. But the one thing that makes the most difference in your life is the operation of your brain. And wonderfully, that's the thing you can actually have the most effect on. You have pretty limited ability to affect your marriage or your kids or your job or your neighbors or your government. But boy, you have a lot of power to affect your own brain, which then will change you gradually over time. Uh, It's not like it'll make you a different person, but it'll make a lot of little differences that add up to big differences over time. And to feel that you have efficacy, in other words, that you can be a cause there, you can be a hammer instead of being a nail in life, boy, that just makes people feel really good. And you know, it also lifts mood because one of the key antidotes to depression is feeling like you actually are not helpless mm-hmm. but can actually make things happen in your life. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's, I guess, one of the fundamental ideas behind this meditation is to change your brain. It's not just the meditations themselves. It's the larger point that you really have the power in your own hands to change your brain. And if you change your brain, you change your life. That was a very empowering tangent. <laughs> okay, good. Now, <laughs> yeah, so me. Yeah, what I about mean, me? Well. Where does me come from? Um, 
Well, it's interesting. I I just got back from a conference, actually, about that, which was really interesting, where they brought contemplatives together with neuroscientists to tackle exactly that question. And it's a huge question, Tammy, and so I'm trying to think what would be short and sweet here, right, Uh, and useful to people. Um, And not too brainy. Just a little brainy, but not too brainy. Yeah. Well, here's some interesting things, right? On the one hand, people have a really strong sense of me, right? Like yeah, they, yeah, and they and in fancy language, people have a really strong sense of what's called ownership. In other words, that they're having their own experience. In other words, I'm having my experience of this phone call. I'm not having Tammy's experience, right? And that's pretty basic, right there. The second thing is they have a sense of agency, that I'm the one who decided to listen to this or turn the volume up or down or, God forbid, turn it off, right? I'm the one who decided that. So we have that really strong sense. What's interesting is that it's really hard to find that in the brain. In other words, the activities, the aspects, when we think of self, we think of a lot of different things, like recognizing our our photograph distinct from other people or... Uh, recalling our own memories or knowing how we feel about um, baseball or Republicans or chocolate ice cream or whatever, right? Uh, and, and all kinds of other things as well. Well, when you have people engage these different, seemingly very fundamental me-related activities, pop, 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 the brain's like a giant popcorn machine. It just, all kinds of parts of the brain light up. It's not like it's located in one spot. It's not like there's, you know the me igdala right there's no me igdala there's this whoosh, everywhere and that totally goes to uh that the eastern teachings about me which is that me is made up of many many parts and second never exists in its own right mm-hmm. but it's always the result of all these conditions coming together to um make it happen uh I personally have concluded I just uh, that I am a unicorn. And what I mean by that is that the thoughts of me exist. People ask the question, do I exist? And I say, well, thoughts of I exist, right? Just like a thought of a red apple exists. As soon as you hear those words, you think about a red apple. Those thoughts exist, and because it's a thought, and you know, you need the brain to make a mind, the pattern of information that corresponds to a red apple in your mind um, has to, you know, is supported by a pattern of neural activity, a momentary pattern. Okay, it's real in that sense. But we have thoughts of unicorns, right? We can make a story about a unicorn, we can imagine a unicorn, but we all know a unicorn really isn't true. And the notion of the me, the I... Okay, I I was with you till then. I mean, I I followed you through the transcendentalist deep dive and everything, but unicorns? Are you really sure they never existed? Well, maybe they did. I don't know. Okay. Pick your own mythical beast. Okay, okay. I don't know. You know, the the snake-headed woman. I don't know. I'm sure they exist, Rick. (laughs) Okay, okay. Wow. Okay, but I get the metaphor. Santa Claus. Okay, Uh, I get the metaphor. I get get where you're going here. Okay. All right. It's a real representation of a mythical creature. Yeah. In other words, that when we think about the I or the me in, in Western psychology and ordinary conversation, we think of this coherent being, this entity, right, who is sort of the same over time and is kind of coherent and autonomous. 
and there is no such being in the brain. And I don't think there's any such being at all. I think what happens is there are moments of um, awareness that have content in them, and then what the brain does is called indexing. It indexes across all these little snapshots to find a movie. And then it strings the snapshots together, so it kind of looks like a movie. And in ordinary language, I call you Tammy. I don't call you Jeff. You know, there's a difference, or Aaron, whatever. There's a, you know, there's a difference there. It's useful in ordinary life to, to be a me. And I think evolution developed me. We had the strongest me of any animal on the planet, probably because it served a lot of functions as we evolved, in, especially in relationships, for example. You know, there's a place for me. Um, I love you has so much more juice than there's love arising here between us, right? Mm -hmm. That said, boy, me makes me suffer. (laughs) You know, getting really possessive or getting really identified with things just makes us start suffering right then and there. And taking things super personally, getting self-conscious, getting all worried about what other people think of us, you know, that just starts making you suffer. And so as soon as you start thinking you're a real unicorn, you start to suffer. Even though unicorns are wonderful and they're Mm -hmm. pretty and they have white and they have long horns, Mm -hmm. I like them. But if you think you're a unicorn, you're going to start to suffer. Mm -hmm. Well, well, I have to say, I have really enjoyed talking to you. (laughs) And I would like to talk to you for a lot longer. And I hope we get another chance because you're so knowledgeable about this whole area. But I want to end with just one final question. Okay. Which is, uh, you know, our program's called Insights at the Edge. Yeah. And what I'm curious about is here at the edge of research and this whole field of discovery, if you had the power, if you had, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. gajillions of dollars available to you and you could set up labs to do certain kinds of tests, what would be the most interesting to you? What research do you really want to see done? Wow. That's a wonderful question. And by the way, I really have enjoyed <laughs> speaking with you, um, even though I know you're not really there. But anyway, <laughs> you're a person. See, you're a person, not a self. I mean, that's the trick. That's the distinction. We are people. We are persons, and that we're unique. But as soon as we start getting into I and me, um, trouble usually starts beginning. Anyway, uh, let's see. Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing that really it gets to a larger subject, but... There's this Native American teaching I heard once that has always really touched me, which is that this Native American elder was asked, um, Grandmother, how come you're so revered? Uh, um, you're, everyone listens to you. You're respected. Everyone loves you. How did that happen? What would you do? And she said, well, honestly, it was kind of simple in that I know that in my heart are two wolves, one of love and one of hate, and it all depends on which one I feed each day. And, you know, we all have a wolf of love and a wolf of hate inside us. In spiritual circles, we tend to kind of disown the wolf of hate, which doesn't do any good. It just grows in the shadows. Actually, in evolution, the wolf of love is bigger, but it's slower. And when we feel threatened, that wolf of hate comes out to hell. And it ha- the wolf of hate comes out really quickly as soon as we make a distinction between us and them. In other words, literally just in the last five years, there's been a strong thread of research that has shown that humans evolved cooperative altruism toward us, in other words, love, toward us, alongside fearful aggression, hate, if you will, 
toward them. And the two co-evolved because in these really intense and competitive um, struggles between bands, you know, mil- over millions of years for scarce resources, um, being aggressive toward them and succeeding at it meant you needed a lot of strong teamwork with us. See? And the threat of them really strengthened that teamwork with us. So the wolf of love and hate evolved together. That said, when we look out at the world today, it is so quick and easy to go us and them. Blue state, red state, progressive, conservative, fundamentalist, open-minded, Muslim, Christian, you know, Catholic, Protestant, whatever. It's really fast. Uh, Serb, Croat, Kosovar, you know, Palestinian, Israeli, um, Shiite, Sunni. Bam, 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 bam. And as soon as studies have shown that even if you break people randomly into groups and then you just assign something meaningless to each group, you see it on Survivor. You know, one tribe is uh, some things, the other tribe is the other things. And instantly they start to feel superior to the other tribe and kind of against them. So I would do studies on how to help people expand the circle of us in ways that are realistic to start seeing other people as us rather than them. They may be us's that need to be negotiated with or us's that need to be dealt with in some you know, practical and effective way in the real world. But you know, even in schoolyards, cliques that form, you know, how do we help people expand this notion of us? Because you know, when we were in breeding groups, which we have been until the last 10,000 years, we evolved in breeding groups of about 100 people, ballpark. You know, we have all the instincts in us that came from that breeding. And in that environment, it worked to have a small circle of us surrounded by threatening thems, right? But now in the world today, we're so intertwined. You know, somebody, um, there's a revolution in some country 10,000 miles away, and oil prices go crazy here at home, and suddenly there are lines at the gas pump, whatever. It's a very intertwined world. We can't afford to have these tiny little islands of us surrounded by a threatening sea of them. We have to expand that circle of us. So that's the research I would, I would nominate. Now, why did you say that the uh, power of love is mm-hmm. slower but stronger? How do we know it's stronger? Yeah, that's a... Well, um, let's see, really fast. So there have been three major jumps in brain size over the last ballpark 150 million years, and each one has been driven by getting good at relationships. And um, by that, I mean kind of as a synonym for love, but getting good at relationships, especially uh, in um, even squirrels and sparrows, has to do with bonding, attachment, uh, and empathy, which are certainly very fundamental to human love, both romantic and also um, sort of you know, agape or you know, selfless love. And so these three steps very quickly were, if you think about it, reptiles and fish have the same problems to survive as uh, mammals and birds. But in proportion to body weight, mammals and birds have substantially bigger brains. What do mammals and birds do that reptiles and fish don't do? We raise our young, and we pair bond, often for life, sometimes for life. And um, so to manage that, in other words, to pick a mate carefully, to uh, figure out how to raise kids well, how to keep them alive while you go off and get food and bring it back, how to deal with their, their stuff, all this stuff a parent <laughs> has to learn how to do 
and work stuff out with your maid. Oh my God, how do you share the teamwork? Who gets the nuts? Who watches the, squir- the little baby squirrels? You know, what do you do? Right? You need a bigger brain. So that's the first jump in vertebrate evolution. Then along come primates. Primates are incredibly social. The more social the primate group, in other words, the bigger it is, the larger the grooming group size is, the more politics is going on in the group, you know, who's got alliances, who's beta, who's alpha, who's up, who's down, all that stuff. The more social the group is, again, the bigger the primate brain. And then we start to start, with primates, we start seeing very human relational capacities for empathy, reading the intentions of other people, deception, you know, playing politics, working it out, building alliances, uh, sneaking off to betray your alliance over there in the corner. Everything you see in Survivor, you know, that's a baboon troop right there. Last, human beings. It's this thing I said to earlier that in the last uh, two, three million years, our brain has tripled in size. That's extraordinary. A huge thing in evolutionary time. Very few analogies to that in any other species. And most of that neural real estate is zoned for social-emotional functioning and cooperative planning because that was what was at a premium as our ancestors evolved in these really harsh environments with, frankly, very high death rates. So that's why um, the, I say, number one, that um, it's called the social brain hypothesis. and It's not unique to me. A lot of research has been done on this, and I say there's a growing consensus that um, the survival benefits of being skillful at relationships were a major, if not the major, driver of brain evolution over the last 150 million years, certainly over the last you know, 10, 20 million years. Second, if you think about it, it's like when you look at the sky and there's a cloud in it, what do you notice? You notice a cloud, especially if it's dark, but you don't really notice the sky because the sky is, is huge, but it's just the sky. The same thing is we notice the drums of war. We notice the howling of the wolf of hate because it really stands out. But what's the backdrop? Most human interactions are cooperative. They're not perfect, but they're basically cooperative. They're nonviolent. They're interactive. People tend to have goodwill for each other when they're not threatened. In other words, what I said earlier, the wolf of hate is quick. It, it responds to threat. We're highly threat sensitive. That's another thing that's actually helped me and my family. I've really come to appreciate how hair trigger the human brain is to threats. And so I do little skillful things to preempt uh, their sense that I'm threatening. Mm-hmm. You know, little things like saying, for example, um, it's totally up to you, you know, what you want to do about this, son. And I got to tell you that I think if you don't fix a muffler on your car, it's going to cost you a lot more later. But mm-hmm. it's up to you. See what I mean? Because I know that he's yeah. primed to feel like dad's being the big boss again. Blah, blah. He's 21. Um, and a great guy. But anyway, uh, so my point is that the wolf of hate is quick. It's quick to pounce. That's why I think it's very important to pay attention to not being threatening needlessly and not overreacting to things in our own life that seem threatening. But without that threat trigger, what do we see? We see the wolf of love. You know, friendships, bonding, caregiving, people go out of their way to help the children of other people that they don't even know. Uh, people will help strangers. Uh, I don't know the number, but uh, it's an enormous amount of money. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars every year, I think, if not more in this economy, are charitable contributions mm-hmm. of one kind or another. 
from church ties to giving to the Red Cross to putting a dollar in the cup of some homeless guy on the street. And, you know, people do that. So that's why I think the wolf of love is more powerful than the wolf I hate. But now it's interesting that I asked you this question about research, and you've given a very inspiring answer about a kind of big vision mm-hmm. where we're not separating us and them. Yeah. But what kind of research is going to help forward that kind of agenda? Well, I think uh, some of it's being done. I uh, would just fund a lot more of it. For example, I think uh, I'd be interested both in, in what happens when people make distinctions, in other words, between us and them, uh, or you know how we're different from each other. You know, in other words, dualisms. Uh, and I'd be very interested in how people do that and how they can learn to be aware of it and not do it so much. That would be one thing. Second, I'd be very interested in research in high conflict situations. You know, gangs in the inner city. Um, you know, going on the West Bank uh, and. Um, you know, the Middle East, uh, and other places, and really studying what actually makes people more uh, aware of the commonalities with other people. I would be very interested in that kind of research, too. And people are doing this sort of thing. Uh, I would just really, really support it, because I personally think that if we don't come to grips with that in this century, our great-grandchildren will curse us. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Rick. It's been a, a really a wild ride of a fun conversation. Thank you. <laughs> I hope our great-grandchildren will bless us. I hope they will say, you know, this generation, which came up, the old, the old uh, I have some gray hair, you know, the graybeards of this generation, you know, the current group of adults on the planet today, um, the graybeards in it came up through in, in the West during an extraordinary period of time with enormous promise and um, resources and, and change, uh, radical, wonderful change. And also I think the flow of information and the rise of non-governmental-based organizations worldwide is creating a real possibility that is unprecedented in human history to really change this planet. And I hope our great-grandchildren will bless us for taking that opportunity and running with it. I will invest in that neural pathway right now. (laughs) Very good. Thank Thank you, you. Rick. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this interview, you may be interested in a new online course on mindfulness and the brain starting on October 6th. It's long been a dream of mine for Sounds True to offer listeners a live chance to interact with their favorite Sounds True authors. And now, beginning on October 6th, we have Dr. Dan Siegel, who is an expert in interpersonal neurobiology, joining up with Buddhist meditation teacher Jack Cornfield for an online course where you can actually earn continuing education credits. The course is called Mindfulness and the Brain. And if you're interested in learning more, check it out at soundstrue.com courses. That's soundstrue.com backslash courses.